Okay, you've obviously forgotten what we practiced last time. If there's something you like, you can respond. Thank you. Right on. Preach it. Thank you. Hey. I remember Dynamite from when it was on prime time. That tells you how old I am. You have something in your programs, if you've got a program, and there's a cup on it. Don't focus on that side. Take it home. Look at it, especially the left side where it says biblical antidotes. That's the medicine. You, you kind of have to take it for it to work. And on the other side, you have a place to take notes. Woo-hoo. Okay. And if you weren't here last week, never fear. I will review just enough that you don't feel left out. And if you want the scriptures from last week, let me know. I've got some extras, and eventually the lesson will make it online. Come. Yes, there's scriptures for today on the back. If you want the scriptures for last week, see me. Okay. And I wanted to thank whoever's been praying for me because it worked. And you wonder, how do I know? Because I'm that good. No. Um, I, I mentioned, thank you, honey. Wait till I, you know. Yeah. We've we got to rehearse a little. Last week I mentioned uh, something about the heart condition that, w- that was diagnosed about 15 years ago. And I didn't get to tell you about how that got fixed. However, um, we still have a lot of heart disease in the family line. And a few months ago, uh, I'm sorry, son, um, but prayer works. So does exercise. <clears throat> I, I see you burning those calories. We saw you moving. <laughs> moving right along. <clears throat> so anyway, I have known for a while that I needed to get more cardiovascular exercise given the family history of heart disease, but couldn't get it done for one reason or another. And, you know, for the past, past few months, I haven't had a reason, but I still couldn't get it done. And when that happens, it's one of two things. Either it's my own character, okay, I'm being lazy or rebellious or whatever, Or maybe there's something spiritually coming against me that I'm just having a hard time breaking through. Well, I know somebody was praying for me because this last week I exercised seven days in a row. Even when it was raining, even when I was fasting, even when the people that said they'd go walking with me didn't show up. And so, I mean, I had excuses, but I was still, what, what? We'll talk about repressed bitterness in a minute, Mercy. <laughs> There's healing for that, too. <laughs> so, anyway, so thank you to whoever was praying for me and my tired little heart. Um, anyway, last week we talked about how the Bible refers to us several times as containers. The biblical word usually is vessels. Um, let me get to this week's notes. That would help you. And let's look at Proverbs 4.23. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That's where everything comes from, your heart. And our objective is transformation. Transformation of our rebellious, sinful nature into Christ-likeness, so that we can be carriers of God to other people. 
And that transformation happens through God. Now, we can conform, but he's the one that transforms us. Okay. Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11, tells us God wants us to become sharers in his own holiness, to have righteousness. And the Amplified tells us that means conformity to God's will in purpose, thought, and action, resulting in right living and right standing with God, which reminds me of the word integrity. And that... And that connotes righteousness, honesty, purity, right? Do you know what the word integrity really means, where it comes from? It comes from the same word that's used in math class to talk about whole numbers. Yes. Whole numbers, complete, not a fraction, not fractured. And so it's a lot like when Randy teaches about the word teleos, whole, complete. That's what integrity means. It means becoming a whole person, complete, mature, righteous. And that's a person that carries around and overflows with goodness instead of nastiness. And we talked last week about how we're designed to overflow. That's God's whole plan for us. He's hoping we'll overflow with him. But if we pile ourselves up with a bunch of other junk, well, that's what will overflow. But we will overflow because we're supposed to. Jesus said in Luke 9:23, he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And the Amplified, when it says follow me, it follows that with cleave steadfastly to me, conform wholly to my example in living and in, if need be in dying also. So God wants us to become people who say no to ourselves and yes to him. And he wants that so that he can bring us into that state of wholeness. And so the question is, is there room for God in our hearts? Or is it crowded full of a bunch of negative stuff like we talked about last week? Negative stuff that we're hoarding. And let's talk about hoarding. It's now becoming a defined condition where people just can't let go. I don't know how well you can see that. It's a kitchen. Do you see the stove in the middle? Anybody going to be cooking up a nice, nourishing, home-cooked pizza anytime soon? On that? Okay, well, well, I know it might seem familiar to you, Rick, but it's really not your place. Okay, I, I found this online. And I've got under that um, some lyrics from a song that really touched me a few years ago when, uh, when it came out, uh, Sean Groves. The particular line that really hit me was souvenirs from floor to ceiling gathered in my search for meaning. And I thought about that, and I thought, okay, what are souvenirs? They're things that aren't worth much. Now, you may pay $25 for it at Disney World, but that plastic isn't worth $25, okay? You buy it because of the memory. And then you keep it for a few years, and almost always it ends up in the garage sale, and somebody gets it for 50 cents, right? And because we're in the 21st century, they then put it on eBay with a starting bid of $2. And then in the description, they tell you originally priced at $25, as though the original price had something to do with its real value. But it's still a piece of plastic. Okay. And so I thought, what are things like that that I have um, worked for in my life in my search for meaning, for being meaningful? And what first came to mind was accomplishments. I've got a long list of accomplishments. Started at least at nine months of age when I learned to walk. And depending on who you ask, by then I could swim and I could talk, too. I don't believe the talking part, but anyway. 
and I thought about this long list and all the stuff I had worked so hard for and exercised self-discipline and sacrifice and all of that, and it's not worth much. I mean, if one of you is hungry, I can't feed you my accomplishments. If you're sick and dying, I can't wrap my accomplishments around you and save you, okay? And so it's kind of sad to spend a life on that. And I thought, too, the other thing was trying to please people. I don't even mean impress them. Just trying to please them so, because that would mean that I was worthy of love. And these are the things I filled my cup with, trying to find meaning. Those are my souvenirs from floor to ceiling. And anyway, he, um, after writing that song, the, the writer wrote a devotional for a worship leader's magazine where he said, you know, the metaphor in the song is that God cleans up our lives just like if you go into a house and you clean out all the junk and you remodel it. He was using the remodeling idea. And he said, you know, really, an even better metaphor is songwriting. And in the devotional, he talks about how many verses he wrote and how many bridges and how many he took out and how many people he played it for and how many times he changed it. And it's just a constant process of revision till he came to the point where the song was ready for consumption. And he says that's really a, a much better picture of what God's doing with our lives. And I want to read you a little bit of that devotional. He says, my job is to rely on his pen and not my own, to not declare myself complete before he does. A mentor once instructed me to continue my journey with Christ the same way I began, dependent, convinced I'm nothing but powerless and corrupt without him. Or as Paul said, and I'm paraphrasing, it's foolish to begin my life with God by trusting his power and his spirit to save me from sin and then continue by relying on myself to do everything else. You and I are living lives that sometimes require revision and erasers. Thankfully, God still has his pen in hand reworking us until we perfectly express his thoughts to everyone who's listening. Some of us are first drafts and others are nearly completed masterpieces, but none of us are perfect reflections of our master yet. None of us are all we will become. So be still. This might sting a little, probably a lot. It's time to be rewritten. And he follows that with a prayer. He says, God, I admit that sometimes I think I'm complete or at least I act like it. It's been a while since I've asked you to whittle away at me, to revise my life, to make my words and actions say everything you want said. God, I'm asking you now to rewrite me, make me a better song, a holier song, a more selfless song. And may the audience listening to my daily life hear you when they're near me. Thank you for holding the pen and doing the work of rewriting me, for loving me just as I am, so much that you won't let me stay this way. Amen. And that's awesome. He loves us so much we don't have to earn it. We don't have to become something he can love. And yet he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Because he's got something better in mind. So with that, let's pray for a second. Lord, I thank you for loving each one of us. For designing us and giving us breath and life even when you knew we would step away from that design. For coming and dying on the cross, even when you knew we would step away from our design. Thank you for loving us that much and then loving us enough to continue to send circumstances and people into our lives that can help rewrite us. And Lord, thank you for that, that plan you have for us. 
I ask that you would um, touch each heart and make it safe to deal with the things that maybe get in our way. And Lord, give us hearts for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we talked about being vessels, containers, and we looked at Corinthians, Timothy, Romans, Thessalonians, Isaiah. We went all over the Bible with this. And we're containers that carry something to the people around us. I suggested that maybe we're more like hoses that are meant to connect to God and then bring him to other people. And so we either carry God's love, his goodness, his mercy, his compassion, his truth, or we carry pain and its byproducts, anger and guilt and condemnation and fear. Looked at a bunch of scriptures for that. And I guess I like to picture things, and the picture that came to mind was that I think for all of us at some point people treat us like toilets where they can dump all their yucky stuff, you know. They can just kind of vomit in us. But that's not what we were meant to be. Uh, We were meant to be vessels of honor, the Bible says, that carry God's glory. And so we end up in this tension because we've been treated like a toilet. We kind of feel like a toilet. And thank the nice lady, I put a clean toilet picture up there. That's not what I had in mind. So we've been treated like a toilet. We were meant to be a vessel of honor. And so we we end up trying to be something in between, which doesn't work. And and I had a, a wonderful little video that went right here that showed you what God does with that middle picture, but it's not working. So you'll just have to imagine that he cleans up everything so that we become that nice cup. Um, It doesn't work to be in the middle. We need him to make us, transform us into what he originally had in mind. And that should be the next slide. So we need him to transform us, clean out our emotional cup, and then fill us up with himself so that we have something good to offer other people, our overflow. But there's good news. A few weeks ago when David taught on um, the Lord's Supper or communion, he talked about Isaiah 53 and really gave a good explanation, um, really in-depth of what that's talking about. And so if you didn't hear that, you can hear it online. Everyone say, yay, Benjamin. VineyardSA.org, left side, online sermons. Okay. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and with his stripes we ourselves are healed. So God wants to heal that pain. But we tend to hang on to it, like hoarding it. And I think that happens sometimes because we don't know how to receive the healing. Or maybe it happens because we've identified ourselves as a victim for so long that it's kind of scary to let go of that label. It's like, okay, if I'm not the victim of whatever, then what am I? And I I think more of the time it's because, okay, if I I stop hurting, then the person who hurt me kind of gets gets away with it. You know, kind of a twisted way of thinking, but, I mean, that's where we go. So I, I have to stay hurt because somehow that punishes the other person. But it's, yeah, it doesn't work. We talked about that last week. No. It's kind of like taking off a Band-Aid. You know, we, we have a sore, and we put a Band-Aid on it, which is good to protect it. 
But as that sore is healing, that cut or whatever, it needs oxygen. And so the time comes to take off the Band-Aid. And sometimes you might need to put medicine on it, and then you really need to take the Band-Aid off. But we're afraid because we're not sure it's completely healed. And so if I pull it off, it's going to hurt, right? But, but the problem is you can't leave that Band-Aid on forever. It, it doesn't heal well that way. Um, and so we refuse to be comforted. Um, Psalm 77, verse 2 says, My soul refused to be comforted. And someone else who knew what it was like um, was Elijah. He hit a point where he didn't believe he could be comforted. And he was having such a rough time. He just wanted to die. In fact, he asked God to kill him because he was so miserable and, and didn't see any hope. And that's the story's in First Kings 19. But what God did, he didn't kill him. What he did was send an angel to feed him. And for those who might want to minister to me someday, um, the angel fed him cake. That would be the biblical model. Okay. So after Elijah, chocolate cake, yes, I'm sure they, they, they missed that word in the translation, but I have a feeling, yes. And Patsy agrees. So After Elijah had gotten away from his trouble, had slept a little and eaten a little, then he was able to go on for 40 more days. But the key with him was that he accepted the comfort. Okay, and that, that's what we need to do. Thank you. But when we keep our wounds covered up, they don't heal well, and it makes for a very explosive stew inside of us. And it poisons us and the people around us. And like we said last week, if we think we can carry around a bunch of pain and anger and keep the lid on, it doesn't work. People, I've done extensive research myself. It doesn't work. The lid will blow and stuff will spew on those around you. Okay? And when we're dealing with someone who's, who's boiling over, Proverbs 15.1 um, talks about turning the heat down. I'm, I'm reading it out of the Amplified. A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Now, I want you to notice it says it stirs up anger. It doesn't say it creates anger. So you, you can get rid of that phrase, you made me angry. I can't make you angry. I can prove it. If I pulled out a gun and said, be angry, and you, be sad, it wouldn't work. Okay? I can provoke the things that are already inside you. I can hurt you, and you can choose to express that as anger. But I can't make you angry. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have a responsibility. I do have a responsibility, if we're in some kind of relationship, coworkers, family, what have you, not to go around really stirring up the stuff that's already bothering you. Unless we're in a healing process, that's different. But every day, I need to not be pushing your buttons. However, you have a responsibility to deal with your feelings at the right time, and the right time is when they first come up, and to deal with them in a healthy manner, and not to carry them around and pile them on top of each other for 40 years, and then when I come along, you spew on me. Okay? And that might seem common sense, but it was really hard for me to understand I understood my responsibility, but that's as far as I knew. And so when somebody abused me verbally, emotionally, financially, you name it, I would say, oh, I shouldn't have provoked them. That's right, I shouldn't have said this, or I shouldn't have used that tone, whatever that means. People apparently recognize it when I use it. I don't know. But I accepted a lot of abuse because I thought it was all up to me not to provoke the person. Well, guess what? It's also up to the person to be healthy. And to take care of their feelings. Okay, enough of that. 
Thank you. So, as we talked about last week, when when we store up pain, which a lot of times we feel is anger, it t- turns into bitterness and then all sorts of problems like fear and guilt and condemnation, things like that. And that's why we're told to watch out for each other. In Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 17, and I'm reading it out of the message, we're told to work at getting along with each other and with God. Otherwise, you'll never get so much as a glimpse of God. Make sure no one gets left out of God's generosity. Keep a sharp eye out for weeds of bitter discontent. A thistle or two gone to seed can ruin a whole garden in no time. Watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. You well know how Esau later regretted that impulsive act and wanted God's blessing, but by then it was too late, tears or no tears. And if you're not familiar with the story of Esau, read Genesis 25. But let's look at this out of the Amplified Bible. It says, Strive to live in peace with everybody and pursue that consecration and holiness without which no one will ever see the Lord. Exercise foresight and be on the watch to look after one another, to see that no one falls back from and fails to secure God's grace. In order that no root of resentment shoots Resentment shoots forth and causes trouble and bitter torment, and the many become contaminated and defiled by it, which is what happens when you carry around bitterness, however that looks for you. It can look like anger or what have you. It defiles many. And I had never thought of this in connection to sexual vice until I read this next verse in this version. Um, The many become contaminated and defiled by it, that no one may become guilty of sexual vice, or become a profane, godless, and sacrilegious person as Esau did. And I got to thinking of all the people I've known who have stumbled in this area. And over and over again, by golly, there was that root of bitterness, of discontent. Somebody rejected me, so I'm going to go out and be promiscuous. Somebody molested me, so I'm going to be promiscuous. Men have been horrible to me, so I'm going to turn to other women or the other way around. And so many times, not always, but so many times, the root was that bitterness. And it says, For you understand that later on he could find no chance to recall the choice he had made, although he sought for it carefully with bitter tears. And I've been in that position of working with someone who wishes they could take something back, but they can't. They can't take away their lost virginity. They can't take away the abortion. They can't take away um, the injuries to their body that now make them sterile because of the abortions. They can't take away the failed marriage. And so when we carry these unhealed hurts around, we can end up doing something impulsive that really costs us, and we can never take it back. Now, yes, there's forgiveness, and God can bring healing and wholeness, but you don't want to have those things. You know, deal with the pain when it's time to deal with the pain or the anger or the offense or whatever. Okay. And some of you might not be able to relate to anger. You know, you might say, well, Mariana, you're a hot-blooded Latin, always, you know, blowing your lid. But, but not me. I don't have that problem. Well, here's what it can look like. Instead of 
violent anger, it can look like what we call passive aggressive, where I don't go and push you. I just kind of stand back and watch you fall and, hey, I didn't do nothing. Now, the fact that I could have helped you, the fact that maybe I left something there for you to trip over, you know, can't blame me. Or we might be paralyzed by fear or by guilt to the point where we don't let anybody get close to us. That's another version of your pot boiling over. And then we wonder why we're so lonely. But, you know, we've said before, we didn't create this mess all by ourselves, and we might need help in cleaning out that emotional cup. Um, And I, I don't know why that's so hard for us to accept sometimes. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or if it's pride or what it is, but, you know, some some time ago when I injured my arm, I required a year and a half of physical therapy and a bunch of surgeries, and nobody except the insurance company ever thought to say, how dare you, you know, how, how dare you take up these doctors' time? How dare you need this much help? You should be able to fix that by yourself. I mean, that's silly, right? But then when we have emotional issues, we kind of feel like, okay, man up or grow up, be a big girl, deal with it. Cowboy up, yes. Sorry, I'm, not, I'm still not completely Texan. I'm, I'm trying, y'all. But you see what I'm saying? Does, does that sort of kind of make sense? Okay. Thank you. In the back. And in fact, God commands us to take care of each other. It commands us to take care of one another's needs, and this includes helping each other go through painful emotions. I'm looking at Romans 12, um, verses 11 through 16a out of the Amplified. Never lag in zeal in an earnest endeavor. Be aglow and burning with the Spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice and exult in hope. Be steadfast and patient in suffering and tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people. And that doesn't just mean money. Sharing in the necessities of the saints, pursue the practice of hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, who are cruel in their attitude toward you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, sharing others' joy, and weep with those who weep, sharing others' grief. Live in harmony with one another. That's a commandment. Live in harmony with one another. The way you do it is right above it. The how is taking care of each other. And I'm going to be very limited in my ability to take care of you if I am full of all this pain and anger and fear and guilt, and right? And I'm also not going to be able to take care of you if you don't let me in. Yes? Okay. So if you don't let me in, you're contributing to the delinquency of a Christian. Well, okay, so okay. I think it, this is heavy duty. I think it's time for a little more comic relief. Um, and, and the idea is that if you're looking to be offended, you'll find it. You'll find a reason to be offended. You know, somebody greeted you very warmly at the front door, but then as you started coming in, somebody else ignored you, and so you're offended. Never mind they were rushing the two-year-old to the bathroom before there was a big accident. You know, if you're looking to be rejected, you'll find that. And so we need to be less um, sensitive to those things. So let's look at one of my favorite cartoons, Bloom County. 
And I'm hoping you can read it from the back so I don't have to read it for you. Because that's a lot of voices to read. Can, can you read it? Yeah? No? Oh, boy. Okay, so the stand is in the way. Thank you. Okay, well, we've got like six different characters or so sitting with our little penguin friend Opus on a bus bench. And they're saying, you know, you penguin types offend me. Hey, I'll tell you what offends me. Dirty words, that's what. Polish jokes offend me. Stereotypes offend me. TV sex offends me. Look, that sign is offensive. I made that sign and I'm offended. Frankly, sir, you, sir, offend me. Well, I'm offended at your offense. These nudes offend my womanhood. Those gays offend my manhood. This comic offends my offensiveness. My gosh, life is offensive. Ah! <laughs> to which Opus replies, often sensitivity. So check your often sensitivity in at the door, please. Turn off all cell phones and pagers. Okay, now if you're not motivated to take care of your emotional issues for yourself, consider this thought. Groups of people can have a corporate emotional cup with their shared pains and their shared history. 1 Corinthians uh, 12, verses 12 to 14 and 26 says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. It doesn't say if one part suffers, the rest of you should be nice and suffer with it. It says if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And that applies to the body here in this congregation, to the body at large around the world, to the body in your family, in your workplace, because when one of you gets wounded, you all suffer. Even if it's my suffering because you can't bring me all the God stuff he had attended to deliver to me through you. Okay. I want to read this out of the message, uh, verses 25 and 26. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church, every part dependent on every other part the parts we mention and the parts we don't, the parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. And so think about how some groups of people carry the emotional scars of slavery. Even though they weren't personally slaves, it was their grandparents, their great-grandparents, but that is still affecting them today. Do you see how a people group can have a corporate emotional cup, a corporate wounding? And that goes for families and workplaces, churches. Um, I think maybe the best example in the Bible is the Jews leaving Egypt. They had been in slavery for 400 years. That's like 100 generations. And so when they thought of authority, all they could think of was someone who was abusive and oppressive. An authority figure was not someone to be trusted. And I think that may be why God did so many miracles before they even started leaving Egypt, 
to show people I'm with this guy, Moses. You can trust him. He's not like Pharaoh. And so they leave Egypt, all sorts of miraculous signs. God is definitely with them. Moses is definitely a good guy. He's not a slave owner, oppressive tyrant dictator. But they're so used to thinking this way, they have all these wounds from being abused and enslaved, that in Numbers 14, we see them not being able to cope with the idea that they're going into the promised land. There have been scouts that went, checked out the place that God had promised them, came back and said, yeah, it rocks. Look how big the fruit is. It's awesome. But the people there are giants, and they're going to stomp on us. We've been stomped on all our lives. They're going to stomp on us too. And the only two that say, no, 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 wait a minute, it's Joshua and Caleb, that say, no, we can take them. Um, It says that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Here's the thing. A leader you vote for is someone you can fire, right? You can impeach. They don't have as much authority as someone God put in. So let's get rid of these wackos, and let's elect someone that we can unelect if he doesn't do what we like, right? Joshua and Caleb said, do not rebel against the Lord. They may have thought they were rebelling against Moses. When you rebel against the authority he has placed on your life, you're rebelling against him. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And so here's the thanks they get. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. And, and I don't think we connect with stoning too much, but there's still stoning going on in the world today, and if you get on the Internet, you can find videos and stuff of it. It's, it's pretty nasty. So they were going to brutally kill their leaders. I don't know if they meant Joshua and Caleb or Moses and Aaron, too. I expect it was probably all four. And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. I would love for God to show up. I don't want him to do it in a situation where we're rebelling against him. Okay? That's not the side you want to see. Okay? So they insisted on a hopeless future. And guess what they got? Exactly. God said, okay, because you've complained so much, because you think the land I'm taking you into is is bad, it's going to be a place where you're going to suffer, guess what? You don't get to go in. So everybody over 20 years old had to wander around the desert till they died. And that was 603,548 men. And they had said, you know, we're going to lose our wives and children. You know, these big giants, we will take them. And so God said, yeah, you're going to lose your wives and children. Your children aren't going to inherit the land. And they were so sure that Moses was going to abuse them that they pushed his buttons and pushed his buttons and pushed his buttons till he did abuse his authority, and he didn't get to go in either. Lovely bunch of folks. Sign me up to lead them somewhere. (laughs) And, you know, there is a place where I feel for them because for 400 years all they had known was oppression, and, and why would they expect anything different? However, there was two of them, Joshua and Caleb, who chose to believe God who chose to trust in Moses, chose to believe that what the future God was leading them into was a good thing. And if they could make that choice, that means the other 600 and some thousand or whatever could make that choice too, right? 
So I, I don't feel so bad for them anymore. And I'm fascinated by Caleb. I wish I could teach on him, but not enough time for that. Because he not only chose to go into the land, but he insisted on defeating the giants and taking the giant's mountain because that's what God had promised him. And that mountain with those long-necked giants that people were so afraid of became a city of refuge, became a, people, a place where people were safe. Isn't that interesting? And I imagine this was God's plan all along. And, and how does that affect our lives? Are the places that I'm afraid to go the places that God intends for me to bring healing and safety? Just a thought. Okay, so if you're not motivated to seek healing for yourself, maybe you'll be motivated to help the people that are in your family, your group, your tribe. Because the longer you stay unhealed, the longer you're splashing that pain on others, and the longer it's going to take the whole group to experience healing. So, last week we promised answer to the questions of how to clean out the container. And we're going to get to that now. Won't be able to go through all of it. I'm going to work on pain, and maybe the rest will follow. We can, experience emotion, we can experience hurt on three levels, physical, obviously, emotional, our heart, our soul, and spiritual. And so in our souls or our hearts, it might feel like hurt, grief, shame, fear, rejection. The spiritual side of that would be guilt, pride, hopelessness, feeling separated from God. And the Bible talks a lot about God's healing power, and one of the most critical areas where we need that healing is our emotions. And it's not just a matter of saying, hey, it's, you know, no big deal, right? It, it is a big deal, or it wouldn't hurt so much, and you wouldn't be spewing on people, right? And I think part of what we need to recognize is that whatever people did to us that hurt us, that was nailed to the cross, too. That Christ did come to bring healing for all of it. Okay, so here's four steps to experience healing from emotional hurt and pain. First, we need to face the hurt. We have to begin by admitting this hurts. We can't forgive something we refuse to acknowledge. And we need to come to terms not only with the fact this person hurt me or this situation hurt me, but also how I exactly feel about it. I feel sad or I feel grief or I feel loss. I feel forsaken. I feel ridiculed. I feel rejected abandoned and if you have trouble with that I recommend the Psalms King David was really good at getting in touch with his pain um, the other thing you don't want to do is to minimize your feelings well you know people are like that or okay yeah that hurt but other people have it worse that was a big one for me that required actual clinical therapy for me because as a child what I did to cope with my environment was um, in middle school, I learned a lot about the concentration camps in World War II. And so I would compare what I was going through com to what those people went through. And I was always better off, right? I mean, almost anything is better than being stuck in an oven, right? So in therapy, and mind you, I'm a semi-intelligent, well-educated person, but my therapist had to say, Mariana, concentration camps are not the standard. She said, we know what average families are like, and yes, children experience some hurts, parents aren't perfect, parents make mistakes, but what you experienced was a lot worse than that, and you need to accept that. 
and deal with that. Because as long as you're doing this concentration camp thing, you're allowing people to abuse you because I can handle it. Well, you need to quit handling it because they keep abusing you. You need to learn how to have healthy relationships. And that was a, that was a big eye-opener for me. Okay, so don't minimize your pain. Thank you. Face the hurt. Let it out, preferably without hurting other people. Um, but without alienating other people either. So you need to share your hurt with someone who will empathize with you and comfort you. And I can't do that for you, neither can anybody else. I can't grieve with you if you don't share with me what's going on. Okay, so step two, understand the truth. Another way to say that is to identify the lie. Whenever there's an injury, Satan runs right up and tries to stick something in there. Okay, it's like a mailbox slot for him. Okay. John 8.32 tells us that we'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I want to read it from the message, John 8.31 and 32. Then Jesus turned to the Jews who had claimed to believe him. If you stick with this, living out what I tell you, you are my disciples for sure. Then you will experience for yourselves the truth, and the truth will free you. And I think the big lie, when we experience pain, we end up with a distorted view of ourselves and the people who hurt us and God. Of ourselves, okay, I must have deserved this. That, that, was, that was mine. If I'm being hurt, abused, neglected, rejected, then I must be a bad person who deserves this. Or we, come, we have a misconception of the other person. They did that on purpose. They did it to hurt me. In fact, everyone's out to get me. Or we have a misconception of God. God doesn't care. He's too busy. That was another one for me. Or maybe God's out to get me, yeah. I never thought God was out to get me, but I really didn't think he cared what I was going through. Because other people hadn't cared. So avoid lies like God can't be trusted and there must not be a God. If there is, he doesn't care about me. Those are lies. And this is where reading your Bible regularly is very important. Now, when you're hurt and you read your Bible, you can find comfort. This is good. But you need to be doing it every day and really like all the time because you don't know when you're going to face this hurt. So instead of it being junk on your TV and junk in your iPod and junk in your books and junk on your computer screen, I'm suggesting it needs to be God on your TV and God in your iPod and God in your books and God in your TV screen. As much as you can get of him because you need to be filled up. I'll say it again. It needs to be. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay, so don't wait till you've been heard. Proverbs 42, verse 6. This is out of the message. Listen to what he says. When my soul is in the dumps, I rehearse everything I know of you. God is good. God loves me. God has a future and a hope for me. God promises to love me all day, sing songs all through the night. My life is God's prayer. And you... That was Psalm 42.6 out of the message. Um, And that's what you need to keep reminding yourself of when these lies come in. God doesn't care about you. He thinks you deserve to be hurt. No. My life is God's prayer. Okay, step three. Confess your fault, if there is any. A lot of times when we're in a hurtful situation, we did do something that contributed to that. Not always, but there are times when that's the case. And if that's the case, you need to... 
man up. After we have faced a hurt and really understood the truth of the situation, we can accept responsibility. And once we understand that, we need to confess to God and confess to the other person, okay, I helped create this mess. Because we might have wounded them too. Confession does not mean I'm a worthless piece of trash and I deserve whatever I get. Okay, That is not confession. Confession is simply to agree that you did something wrong. Yes, I did it. What I did was wrong. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? That's it. First, we confess to God. First John 1 John 1.9 says, But if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. And then you confess to others. James 5.16, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Okay. So you face the hurt, you understand the truth, you confess your part of it, and the last step is to forgive the other person. And that other person could be an institution. Maybe your employer done you wrong. Maybe it's the church. Maybe it's a government. Okay. Usually it's a person. And the focus here is on your will, not your emotions. This may come as a big shock, but forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling, just like love is a choice, not a feeling. I don't care what the love songs say. It's a choice. And we do it not on the basis of whether the other person deserves it, because you're going to be waiting a long time. (laughs) You do it on the basis that God didn't wait for us to deserve it. Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. That's Ephesians 4.32. And that forgiveness, and I think we touched on this last week, heals us, sometimes even more than the other person. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you, ref- if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. When we say, I can never forgive them, that's like taking yourself, putting yourself in a jail cell, closing the door, throwing away the key, and it's a jail cell full of acid and bitterness. Okay? And you've chosen that. With God, all things are possible. There's no way you can't forgive someone. God can do that. And so imagine if you're standing on an intersection, you're about to cross the street, and somebody, their car's out of control, they hit you. They hurt you. You go to the hospital. You finally get out of the hospital, and you start stalking that person and watching everywhere they go because you want to know when they get to that same intersection so you can jump in front of them again, and they can hurt you again. And then you get out of the hospital, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. That's what it's like to rehearse in your mind, I can't believe she said that to me. I can't believe she would talk that way to me. I can't believe she would have such little respect for me, you know. And then what we do is we drag other people. And we say, come here, come here, come stand on this corner and watch me get hit again. This is, like, not helpful. Have I done this before, this particular message? No. (laughs) Rehearsing in my mind how somebody offended me, I I did it just to prepare for the message, yeah. (laughs) Job 18, verse 4, talks about 
in, in one verse, and you who tear yourself to pieces in your anger. We looked at that verse last week. When you, when you hold on to this anger, you're just tearing yourself apart. Four steps to experience healing from emotional hurt and pain. Face the truth, understand the truth, confess your fault, and forgive the offender. Dealing with anger is very similar. That would probably merit its own lesson. And if you deal with the pain and the anger, usually everything else comes into focus. So the, the main idea is to become proactive in dealing with pain and anger and guilt and fear and condemnation and all those things that cause stress. And it might take you a while to walk through that. It's okay. It took me a year and a half to recover my arm. I was kind of glad I did it. At the time, I wasn't. But I'm glad now, I think. Um, And here's a strategy I use. When I have thoughts coming in that aren't helpful about how whatever it is, you know, I deserve to be treated this way or that person, you know, was hurt me on purpose or God doesn't care about me, any of those thoughts, I do the same thing you would do if you were on the phone and you weren't quite sure whose voice it was. I say, excuse me, can I ask who's calling? And if the answer is hell, I say, no. And so you'll hear me say, hell no. Well, that's the appropriate punctuation for that sentence when you hear me say it. Yes, hell no. Works for me. Okay, so sometimes it's easier to say this stuff than to do it. Um, and, and you may be feeling so much stuff that you don't know where to start. But if you find yourself with uncontrolled anger or pain or grief, or even fear, um, if you find yourself running over and over again, stuff that happened in your childhood or whenever, then I suggest you take a step today to start dealing with that. Go ahead and get that Band-Aid off. That's really the hardest part. Not the taking the Band-Aid off, the moment before it when you're considering it. Okay. Here's a prayer that might be helpful. Um, I don't think we're going to do it together. I want to read it to give you an idea of of how you could bring this to God. God, I'm overwhelmed by many things, and I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I'm sorry for how I've blown it in my life. Jesus, thank you for showing me how to love instead of hate. Help me to take these steps to health. I choose to forgive those who have hurt me. Help me to begin to love others like you love me. And I choose to forgive myself Help me to see myself as you see me. Matthew 5, 4 out of the Amplified says, and this is a promise, Blessed and enviably happy with the happiness produced by the experience of God's favor and especially conditioned by the revelation of his matchless grace. Blessed and enviably happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's a promise. And so I want to encourage you to become the kind of container that God can use to present any gift to his guests for their blessing. And there's going to be some of us here at the front. If you want a little help taking off the Band-Aid, we'd be happy to do that. For continuing help, I strongly recommend a community group or some other type of relationship where you meet regularly and share with one another your griefs and your joys.